here today with uh, Peter Jan Marquis from the University of Amsterdam. Uh, and we're here to talk about the miracle of Amsterdam, your new book. Um, so can we start out with you? Just tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you, where are you from? How did you come to this? Well, indeed, I'm Dutch, but I was born in the south of the Netherlands, which is actually the Catholic part of the Netherlands, contrary to the northern part of the Netherlands, which is Protestant. And, um, well, strangely enough, I was born there, but I never saw, I never experienced pilgrimages or St. Kulls or whatever. So it was only later when I started to study um, history in Amsterdam, University of Amsterdam, medieval history, that I encountered, well, St. Kulls and pilgrimages, and it was fascinated by that topic. Moreover, because I went traveling through Europe. And at one point I uh, arrived in uh, the south of France, where there is this um, famous shrine of Our Lady of Rocamadour. And I was there and it was flabbergasted. What was I seeing? I saw people going on their knees on the long stairs along, winding stairs along this huge rock, which stands up in the landscape. And well, you could maybe say in in hindsight that that was my well ethnological sensation that there was actually um, well I, I found it so fascinating what was happening there. I was wondering what are these people doing there? What is so important to go on your knees on a stone stair for hundreds of meters up to this monastery over there? And so um, um, well, and then well, and then I finished doing my research and uh, I started to work actually at the National Records Office in, in Amsterdam. And so I got really engaged in historical sources afterwards. And uh, later on, I wanted to do more research and I wanted to do more research on religious cultures. And I started doing my PhD when I was 40. And then I um, got a new job at the uh, Meertens Institute in Amsterdam, which actually deals with uh, popular culture, religious popular culture. And I was engaged there to execute a very vast long-term research project on pilgrimage culture. And later on, I got this uh, additional position in ethnology as a professor at the University of Amsterdam. So actually, nowadays, I'm combining these two positions and well, doing my job. <laughs> right. <laughs> Excellent. So um, this starts with a great story, the miracle of Amsterdam. So could you, uh, would you tell me about that? What happened? Well, it's, it's a great story, but it's also a little bit prosaic because in those days, eh, and then we're talking about the year 1345, when actually eh, mid-March this miracle happened. But well, it, 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 it was a miracle sort of dime a dozen because in those years or those centuries, even from the 13th till the 15th century in Europe, there were many such miracles as happened in Amsterdam, so-called Eucharistic miracles, miracles that happened to a, to a, to a host, um, as Catholics say. And what actually happened in Amsterdam was one of a kind eh, because they all look alike and they fit the, well, clerical strategy, as one may say, of those years to, to, to have some instruments to convince people to believe in actually in the transubstantiation of the host. 
eh, which means that well, Catholics believe that the host is being transubstantiated into real flesh and blood during the consecration in mass. And also, well, nowadays me, people doubt that, but also in medieval times, there were also people and even priests who didn't believe that this really took place in a, well, in a uh, theological way. And, um, and so many of these miracles were used to convince people about the authenticity of, well, religious practice and the things happening there. What happened in Amsterdam actually was a little slightly different because there was in, in downtown Amsterdam of those years, there was a man lying on the bed. He was very sick and um, people said, well, he needs to have the, the ultimate sacraments before he is going to die. So the priest was called upon and he brought him the host and he gave him the host. But the man was that thick that at one point he started to vomit and his wife was in the room and um, seeing him starting to vomit, she came with a plate and she was able to catch the vomit. It's a little bit nasty story, but um, it, she, she did actually a very um, uh, important thing because um, the vomit with a host is actually sacred waste. And the sacred waste cannot be just thrown into the canals of Amsterdam, but you have to burn it ritually. And so she put it in the, in the fireplace and what happened the next day, all wood in the fireplace was burnt. Everything was burnt, but there was only this one still beautiful, white, shining host lying among the ashes. And that is that comes down to the miracle of Amsterdam. And that's that's miraculous, right? That's pretty amazing. That's miraculous. We <laughs> could say if it really happened or not, we cannot say because as I told you, there were hundreds of such kind of miracles happening throughout Europe in those days. And, uh, but in Amsterdam, they were so, well, convinced that it was a miracle that they, well, not, not yet actually directly convinced, they, they called upon um, the priest of Amsterdam and they brought this host to uh, this priest. And, but miraculously for a second time, the host returned to the original house where the man lived. And this was, this happened three times. And that's also a sort of topos-like story that when things happen three times, it's the convincing ritual that the host or what happened there should really be there. And that this place was hallowed by, by God. And that as a consequence, a chapel or a shrine should be built on that place, a place to venerate. And ultimately becoming a place of pilgrimage. I don't hear you. All right, there I am. Sorry, I muted my mic. All right, so this um, this isn't terribly common in the history of Amsterdam though, right? This is um, a, a fairly unique incident in Amsterdam. Well, this this kind of what I uh, well this kind of miracles they happen through Europe over three centuries for about two hundred times, but uh, <laughs> okay. in, in 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 the Netherlands of those years there were approximately twenty of such kind of miracles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every miracle evolved into a big shrine or to a long history, but uh, in the history of Amsterdam there's actually only well in in, in of those days there's one miracle. And uh, we can only, if we jump six centuries later, we can only uh, engage, encounter a new miracle happening, not with the Eucharist, but then we speak about 
1945, so to say, at the end of the Second World War, when another miracle happened, or sort of miracle, and that was Mary, who was appearing before an Amsterdam lady. So actually in Amsterdam we have two different shrines, one from the Middle Ages miracle host, and one a 20th century the apparition of Mary the Mary, the Lady of All Nations, as it's called. All right. That's that's solid. Um, <laughs> okay. Solid. So yeah. <laughs> So good. Those are good miracles. All right. So tell me uh, the parameters of your book. So you start with this 14th century miraculous event with the host, but it continues well into the 20th century, right? So yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, it it it's really an um, uh, well. That was actually the fascinating thing about this story had yeah, that it happened in 1345, and that it has been well, contested throughout the centuries, eh? because that's already more than six, seven century, centuries ago, and it has been um, continuously be contested, and there has been um, all kind of, of um, um, changes in history. We had the Reformation, we had um, um, the, 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 the difficulty that uh, Catholicism in the Netherlands was suppressed, we had uh, a, a revivalism of Protestantism and antagonism against Catholicism in the 19th century. But it really survived through all these centuries. And then you really uh, can become fascinated by the tenacity of uh, of cults, of the tenacity of the sacred. And that's that's something which is, um, yeah, and um, 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 embedded in the cultural memory of of people and um, well, often you see that 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 things disappear after the Reformation. But here in Amsterdam, there was always a lineage which was kept by Catholics, and um, the, the 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 cult itself was it was every time was reinvented into new forms, into new expressions, in order to help it survive and to bring the memory of this. Um, of this miracle um, uh, to the present again. And um, well, and so, well, that's what we did, eh? because I did not only uh, wrote this book, but I had my colleague Charles Caspers, who took part for the uh, medieval and early modern history. And so through, um, through the centuries, we have been describing uh, how this, well, so, so to say, also contested miracle, this prosaic miracle was able to mobilize, um, well, 10,000, 100,000 of people throughout Europe, because in the Middle Ages it was really a European um, um, uh, pilgrimage, place of pilgrimage, where, well, uh, nobility, royalty from all over Europe came to Amsterdam to invoke this uh, sacred Stead, this locus sacer, this holy place in Amsterdam, and to 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 request for um, healing or you know, all kind of support from from above, so to say, and um, and so um, uh, during the 17th century, after the Reformation, it 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 really well, it, it became a very more local, little bit regional. Um, uh, uh, pilgrimage, eh? a little bit um, enshrined in its own 
small environment which was tolerated by the Protestants. And then uh, we see again in the 19th century, when um, after hey, in the slipstream of the French Revolution, we also get our Dutch or so-called Batavian Revolution, then the suppression of the religious minorities was, was stopped and the Catholics could uh, well um, um, take their own uh, place in society again. But um, at that point, the, the, the Dutch society was, was seen as so Protestant that the, that the Protestants actually could not allow again the Catholics to take this place fully and to have their, um, their devotions taken up again. And so a new fight evolved actually um, harsher than ever before. And uh, the Catholics were very uh, suppressed uh, not to um, uh, practice their devotions and rituals in public. And that was um, uh, a very uh, contestuous um, uh, element in the whole devotion. So methodologically, um, this, I mean, this is a cultural history of an object, yeah? And an idea? Well, it's more an idea because the object isn't there, actually. And that is also very interesting because uh, something we cannot imagine, because usually you have a cult object, which uh, for a, a, a miraculous Marian statue, uh, which which remains and, and well, it, it decays a little bit. But here we have this, this host and we have a very interesting um, 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 a uh, letter from the Bishop of Utrecht already from two years after the miracle in 1347, in which he says that if this miracle hosts gets dirty or, or is in decay or wilters, that the priest is allowed to, as, as much as possible, to, um, 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 to bless a new host again. So probably there have been hundreds of miracle hosts every year a new miracle host was put inside of the shrine and so um yeah is is there an object yes or no because during the reformation uh, and the iconoclasm of the of, of 1566 the last one was demolished so there is more this idea of the miracle which is important in the history of of this uh, site and then this idea then represents, you can trace the history of the relationship between Catholicism and Protestantism or the or the treatment of Catholicism in the Netherlands across time via the shrine. Is that fair to say? That the book is about. Yeah, I mean, or well, would... actually, what we try to do because there is, it's not one unidirectional relationship. Because this, 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 this miracle, or let's say the cultural consequences of the miracle that happened, are of a political kind, of an economical kind, of a cultural kind, of a social kind, and so we try to bring in the whole network of. Of, of processes which um, which which um, uh, were a result of this miracle into the history of Amsterdam, the history of the Netherlands, and to a certain extent in the medieval times, the history of Europe. And so 
I, I think we, we have a, a, a very um, multi-directional cultural history of uh, well, the consequences of this miracle which happened in 1345. So the miracle in itself is not in itself important. It is important that this idea came into being. But what was the result of that is really enormous. And from a modern perspective, you can hardly imagine uh, how 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 vast the, the influence of this miracle host was to Dutch and European history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, because miraculous devotion, I mean, that's the thing with this, with these pilgrimages, with those sites, these locations where the slippage between the, you know, the physical and the spiritual worlds kind of exist. Um, and a, it's, that's a fascinating thing. Okay, so um, can, do you mind going through the book kind of chapter by chapter and just giving no, me a brief no, summary? All right. So uh, your introduction I think you've covered with the miracle. Tell me about chapter one, the religious context in the Eucharist. Well, I've been talking a little bit that, that we try to, to contextualize this um, miracle of Amsterdam, which maybe for Amsterdam is unique, which, which is not unique in a European perspective, because as I told you before that, that uh, during the, the, the 13th to 16th century, there were approximately 200 of such miracle hosts, of um, um, miracle, uh, Eucharistic miracles, I must say, in Europe. And so it fits in that pattern. And uh, well, the pattern is in itself interesting, but well, Amsterdam has its own historical development, the development out of it. And that's what uh, the first chapter is about. And this first chapter also uh, describes the, the different uh, variations to the story of the miracle, because there are many variations to, to that. And also it tells about the initial expansion uh, under the um, rulers of the House of Burgundy. And um, yeah, that's that's the development of the of the shrine in uh, medieval times, which has also an important element into it because well, the host didn't burn in 1345, but actually there was a, an, a, a second uh, miracle of Amsterdam because when the fame of that miracle became so 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 big, people started to build. They they destroyed the house where the man was living. If he died or not, well, we we do we do not know because the sources are not so so full of that. Um, and so they built. A shrine, a, a very nice uh, um, pilgrimage chapel on that on that on that site. In 1452, eh, because well, Amsterdam was full of wooden houses. A huge uh, fire burned down half of the city, including the uh, chapel of the miracle, the Holy Stead. And um, uh, miraculously, again, um, the host didn't burn again. So the the full um, uh, chapel was burned down, but in a one corner, uh, uh, the miracle again survived. And so this was seen as a sort of confirmation of uh, the initial miracle. And after that, the pilgrimages uh, took up speed again and became even more known throughout Europe, which led to the new rulers of the Netherlands and the Habsburg house to, um, to uh, 
come and visit more often the newly built um, shrine with this newly built big chapel of uh, the Holy Stead. And this this Holy Stead was a very, uh, if you compare it to other pilgrimage places, a very big, beautiful um, uh, chapel. Uh, it was called then the eighth world miracle uh, because it was so big and so full of of silver and gold and all kind of presents which were brought by royalty and uh, the, the simple pilgrims as well. And uh, so it was one of the most important places of the whole town. All right. So in chapter two in the Habsburgs favor, you talk more about the Habsburgs and their interaction with the city, with the miracle yeah. and Amsterdam itself. Indeed, indeed. So I, I, I was actually uh, combining. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. And then we move into the third chapter when you talk about the 17th and 18th century. It's called the miracle on the margins. What happens yeah. there? Yeah, it's called uh, uh, on the margins because, um, well, we all know that in uh, 1566 we had this iconoclasm uh, fury going through the low countries in which all chapels and 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 churches were were uh, were, were uh, iconoclast and but unfortunately uh, because uh, the gender issues are important also in relation to the Amsterdam miracle there were the Amsterdam women who were so uh, strong and important that they uh, were able to defend the um, uh, holy stead miracle chapel uh, against the uh, people who want to iconoclast the, um, uh, the chapel. And um, and so it is only after 1578, uh, the end of the 16th century, when Amsterdam went over to Protestantism. So Catholicism was formally uh, uh, forbidden from that time on. The chapel of the Holy State was closed. Uh, it was uh, de desecrated and... Um, it uh, later became a Protestant church uh, in itself. It meant that for the Catholics, they were orphaned from their own churches. And there was only one remaining aisle of Catholicism in Amsterdam left, and that was the Beginich. And the Beginich, which was an well, encircled uh, in, in a sort of enclosure of, of houses, and inside of that Beginich, uh, a new priest for Amsterdam, Leonardus Marius, took his seat and tried to reorganize um, uh, Catholicism uh, after the Reformation for the remaining Catholic um, uh, population of Amsterdam. Uh, approximately 30% of the Amsterdam population remained Protestant after the Reformation. And he was able to uh, change two or three houses of the Beginich into an um, a conventicle church, a hidden church. And in this church, he was able to re-establish, as it was called, the new Holy Stead. So actually the shrine uh, of the medieval host was transferred from the place which was desecrated to the Beginich. And so, um, well, due to the Reformation in general, Catholics weren't able uh, or allowed to practice their devotion in public or to have pilgrimages come to Amsterdam. Uh, that was all, uh, well, so to say, illegal. And uh, it became a very marginalized 
devotion, which was actually more or less practiced by, well, Catholic inhabitants of Amsterdam and Catholics from the surrounding area. Uh, but anyhow, the Catholics were able to continue their devotion. It wasn't cut. Uh, um, and uh, one of the important elements uh, related to that was that the ritual of the procession was kept. Uh, during uh, the medieval period, one of the expressions of devotions for the uh, Amsterdam miracle was an additional uh, sacra uh, sacramental procession, a procession of the Holy Sacrament. And it was the biggest of the whole town, because there were more processions, of course, but this one was the biggest in which the whole town was united. And it was always done around mid-March. And the route of this uh, procession, which really encircled the whole town through some streets, um, was kept in the collective memory. And what was important for uh, the suppressed Catholics after the Reformation is that they uh, wanted to continue with the most important um, uh, veneration practice for the miracle. And that was this procession. So what they could do, they couldn't do, of course, after the Reformation, any processions anymore, but they did it individually. Did Catholics, they walked the route, the track of the procession through town. And they did that around mid-March again, every year, uh, Possibly on their bare feet because it was even more, uh, more well, it was, was better to do it in this way with more uh, veneration. And uh, individually, they walked um, this 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 procession, and this was kept on for years and 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 centuries until the 19th centuries. And so, in this way, um, the Catholics um, 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 they were able to keep to this very important uh, um, miracle for their community. Also because they had to reunite themselves again as a community. And this was a sort of, well, the sort of reference point eh, from their glorious history, from the glorious medieval times to keep in mind and to keep that as a, well, as a point of reference for them for the future as well. And so um, this miracle was an instrument to keep faith, to keep a well-connected and and um, uh, community, and to uh, well to reorganize themselves as as against well the 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 the, the, the dominating uh, Protestant culture. One of the arguments I think you make very well that I, I really enjoy is the idea that this this is so symbolic and this becomes this important rallying point or just a point for the residents of Amsterdam to remember their Catholicism that becomes this very important um, locus for devotion, which is mm -hmm. kind of fascinating. And then that it's in the kind of hidden away, you know, the, at the, at the beginage uh, doesn't seem to cause any problems. I'm curious. I was curious as I was reading and I remain curious about um, how secret is this? If in mid-March I see someone walking barefoot around town in this known procession, right? The, I'm going to know, right? The authorities are going to know what is happening. Yeah. So um, it seems like this is a fairly out, fairly public, silent devotion. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It wasn't secret, but you weren't allowed as a Catholic to show your symbolic of Catholicism. So you couldn't show your rosary in your hand. You couldn't 
walk with it with a banner in your hand. You couldn't sing or pray uh, Catholic songs or prayers in public. So, but they couldn't stop people walking barefoot because they were, and they couldn't stop people walking around. So it, and so there was a sort of common knowledge about what was happening. And there were many conventicle churches in Amsterdam, hidden churches. And, and of course, initially they, 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 they did it a little bit in secrecy, but at some point, well, people have to live together. There was a large remaining uh, Catholic community. You couldn't, you couldn't, leave it outside because there were many important merchants also among them. So as a sort of, um, well, um, cohabitation, you, you, you needed Catholics and the Catholics needed the Protestants as well. So they let themselves go to a large extent. So there was this idea also, which exists about the Dutch or about Amsterdam, a high level of tolerance. So people knew that they were singing and praying and they knew that they were walking around. But what they didn't tolerate at that moment is that some of the Catholics, they wanted to go because the old medieval shrine was still standing here. There was now a, a Catholic, a, a Protestant, it was turned into a Protestant church. What they didn't allow was that during service in the Protestant church, Catholics went into it and started praying at the former place where the holy miracle was found in the in the fireplace and even during service of the protestant they tried to take out some little stones and relics of the place where uh, the fireplace has been and that was a step too far <laughs> and then protestants just well they 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 took action and they kicked them out again but as long as they didn't publicly all kind of of things then there was no problem. But within the Beginich, um, that was a closed, uh, um, 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 yeah, what, how to say, it was a closed uh, community of, of buildings and so that has, has a, a large interior terrain. There they could a little uh, ritualities and singing and praying because that was inside a private space. And yeah, as long as it was public, then uh, it wasn't a problem. Yeah, the beginnage in Amsterdam is, you know, this very closed. It's There's a courtyard, the buildings that surround a courtyard and all windows. You can see the buildings, but all the doors are on the inside. It's this very closed kind of secret there's space. There's only a gate to, to which you can enter it. So it's, yeah. and they can close the gate and that's what they did then. And then they had their own practices there. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a, you know, this is a very important part of kind of the Dutch identity, and particularly Amsterdam, kind of construction of Amsterdam is this idea of tolerance. And I mean, that's, that's one of the pillars of Dutchness, right? Um, yeah. So um, in the in uh, chapter five, you kind of move from a Catholic identity to a national, it's called the silent walk is a national symbol of identity. Would you like to comment on that for me? Yeah, 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 because, well, uh, important thing is maybe because that connects to chapter four, because um, uh, had this after uh, um, the, 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 the Dutch Revolution in which all religions were equal again and they were allowed to, to do everything they wanted, the Protestants had become so wary about the Catholics and because about ultramontanism and, and the role of the popes and the Jesuits, Protestants saw all kinds of conspiracies around them that 
now with this liberty of, of, of religion in the Netherlands, Catholics would take over actually the Netherlands and would, with the help of Jesuits and Rome, uh, um, um, uh, take over the country and, and wipe out Protestantism. So they, they became contrary to the uh, ecumenism and the tolerance of the 17th, 18th century. In the 19th century, due to these conspiracy ideas and so on, um, there became a, a, a very strong antagonism between Protestants and Catholicism. And so uh, it led even to um, a, a constitutional ban on processions because uh, this, Catholics thought, well, now we are free to, to practice our religion again, so we start also doing uh, processions, also a bridge too far. And then the Protestants said, no, 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 you may only do something inside your own churches. And they were so wary that they even put a constitutional ban on processions. And its constitutional ban on processions remained even until 1983 in the Dutch constitution. So that explains a little bit the, 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 the difficulty on public rituality and the antagonism between Protestants and Catholics in the 19th century. And so and why I'm telling you this, because um, at one point, um, Catholics said, what can we do now? Because we 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 have freedom of religion and but we are still such a to a certain extent scattered community throughout the Netherlands eh? and the thousand a little bit more was more uh, a, a majority but in the northern parts uh, minorities and we want to to become well uh, Catholics at large in in the Netherlands as a, as a real community. We want to, to find ourselves and to emancipate because we have been suppressed for so for two decades by the Protestants. We want to become full citizens again. But full citizenship and relation actually meant for them also very important to practice processions and even funeral processions which were, were not allowed, etc. And so they did something clever. They called back upon the tradition and they knew, and now we're talking about the end of the 19th century, 1881, to lay young Catholics. They recalled that during the 17th, 18th century, people were uh, reenacting individually these medieval processions. Eh? The thing we talked about, eh, that they, on their barefoot, they just did it individually because that was allowed. And they said, well, maybe if we take that tradition as a starting point, and maybe we can turn that uh, individual rituality into a sort of collective new ritual. And maybe that might give an impetus and uh, maybe an, an incentive to, um, to, to the importance and to the revival of the devotion to the uh, um, miracle of Amsterdam. And so what they did, they started initially with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people started walking again in a little group, this same route of the medieval procession. And then at some point, people found that a splendid idea and they were they were motivated by it. It was also a time in which the emancipation of Catholics took up speed a, a bit again and that they really uh, found it important to 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 try to 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 do and 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 
revival of the medieval devotion. So everywhere in the country, people were thinking about how can we take up this this Marian devotion from Halo again, because it was that that was also that also disappeared during the Reformation. And so in this hill in this whole uh, dynamics of of uh, emancipatory behavior of the Catholics in the second half of the of the 19th century. This was a sort of yeah. At some point, um, people thought, well, maybe in the capital of the Netherlands, it's symbolically so important to have this devotion, which was known throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, to revive it again and to use it as an instrument for our further emancipation and about uniting Dutch, um, uh, the the Dutch Catholica, the the Dutch Catholics. And so within two decades from a group of four people, it, it, it grew into a national movement of 10,000 of people who came to Amsterdam to walk all collectively together this uh, um, route of the former processions, but do it all because eh, we had this ban on processions, so they had to do it quiet, they had to do it without any symbolic, any visual symbolics, so, uh, and they had to do it during the night because they were still initially afraid if they would do, do this during the day that it would offend the Protestants and that maybe with some police force uh, it might be um, um, stopped. And so slowly yeah, from 8081 till the beginning of the 1900s, it grew slowly from a very small movement into a huge movement. And at some point, uh, 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 e even 90,000 people, 90,000 Catholics came from all over the Netherlands in the night. So they walked from 12 o'clock at night till six o'clock in the morning with extra trains, with buses and so on. It was a huge operation to bring all these people from one night from all over the country to Amsterdam. And and so yeah, because you asked me what's the national and it's actually this 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 became the only real national pilgrimage for the Dutch Catholics at large. And it was in the capital, but it was also done in a Dutch way because it was not only a, a, a devotional ritual, but it was actually also a movement of protest because um, they walked there, but they did it silently. And this silent walking was actually also this implicit protest, protest of um, the idea that we cannot have any processions because there is this constitutional ban and we are still secondary citizens of the Netherlands. And so it grew uh, and became, well, of course, very well known as a sort of um, 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 well, as a as a devotional movement, but also as an uh, as a movement of protest. So, can you tell me what happens during the war? Is there um, a, a, are there these processions during World War Two? Well, during the war, uh, initially the first the, uh, the first war year in 1941, there was there was no problem, but um, uh, the rest of the war until 1945, 
the Germans uh, uh, did not allow to uh, to walk uh, um, um, this collective um, uh, silent walk, as it is called. Um, initially, people did it in the old-fashioned way to do it individually, uh, in pairs or with, with, with in small groups. But uh, later on, it became more and more dangerous to 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 do it in larger groups. But there were still some people who, until the end of the war, tried to not to lose this this tradition, eh? because it has been always been practiced. Sometimes with very little quantities. Eh? Also, uh, beginning of the 19th century, were only a few Catholics who remembered it to do it, and and so and there also people said this 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 tradition of every year doing the remembrance of the procession and uh, in honor of the of the miracle we should keep it so during the war there was also some people who really uh, kept um, the line uh, unbroken important oh. no go ahead please well maybe important to say is that um, this silent walk uh, as it as it was called um, was actually a practice of man and um, it was only that in uh, in the in the in the 1960s that women were officially allowed uh, to participate, and that has to do is also uh, a, a, a famed or an infamed element of uh, of Amsterdam culture, is that already in the 19th century when this silent walk started, it had to follow the the uh, the course of the medieval procession. But the medieval procession, this, 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 the, these streets went through the red light district of Amsterdam, which is now the red light district, but also in the 19th century it was. And then it was regarded as unthinkable that women would go during the night, eh, because it was a nightly uh, silent walk, that they would well, um, uh, participate in such a procession going through the red light district. And so, um, uh, which doesn't imply that there, that there weren't any women because there were many well many but there were always some dozens of women who wanted to go along and uh, just uh, just disobey the orders of, of of the priest and the and the organizers and um and it's only until the beginning of the 1950s that there is specific uh, silent walk for women was um, instituted, which didn't start at night, but which start early in the morning. So for the women, they could start at uh, seven o'clock on Sunday morning. So walk in daylight on the quiet Sunday morning through these uh, streets. And it's only, as I said, in the 1960s that it was allowed by the organizers eh, after the Cultural Revolution, of course, um, to have jointly do this silent walk that's such a great uh, i love that i love that part of this uh this whole story with the idea that it, this procession goes through Davala now right like right through the yeah. red light district <laughs> have you seen it once no i've never seen the pro uh the procession okay. i'm very excited i'm gonna watch for it next year um so I, which I, bring I, I deliberately do not use the word procession because it's okay. so because it 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 could not be a procession, and uh, it it was not allowed to be a procession. So then the word use of the word procession is 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 confusing, so to say. That's so that's why I use the word silent walk. And I know that in in English it's it's ambiguous the word, but in Dutch when you use procession, you always think about a religious procession, which it 
Yeah. I mean, in a Catholic context, even in English, that makes sense, right? A procession is a procession is an event in a way yeah. that a walk, you know, yeah. is, yeah. Pro, there's yeah. fanfare to procession. Yeah. Um, so actually, this takes us well into chapter six, revolution and the reinvention of tradition, starting in uh, 1960 to 2015. So uh, tell me what happens in chapter six. Well, in chapter six, then, uh, of course, the long 1960s, well, what do we all know about the long 1960s? We have a cultural revolution, uh, beat generation, uh, um, uh, but also there is an, um, a religious revolution. So uh, the religious institutions are debated, uh, are standing under pressure and... Uh, um, um, uh, especially that council also for the Catholic Church, and more in particular in the Netherlands, because the Netherlands always were very devout Catholics, because um, they were very attached to Rome and they were very ultramontane, as it is called, uh, connected to the policy of Rome. But as deep devout as they were before the 1960s, after the religious and cultural revolution of those years, they became the most um, 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 liberal. And the, 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 the decay of Catholicism has become one of the strongest in the Netherlands. And, and also the, 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 the new ideas of how to practice Catholicism also uh, made Rome very wary about the, the, the new Dutch catechism and so on. They were very... It was very infamous and um, yeah, whatever. So, um, but that also uh, meant that that um, um, the institutional church uh, decayed very much, but also all practices and um, devotions connected to it. Uh, the Second Vatican Council also had a sort of yeah depreciating. Um, 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 attitude towards devotions which were called medieval and whatever and that was really very much expressed also in the Dutch media and and mediated and even Catholic priests they thought they they professed that it was all from another age and era and that we shouldn't do that anymore so that that affected very much also the um, uh, silent walk which diminished from in the late 1950s from 90,000 people a year to six seven thousand a year uh, in uh, the beginning of the 1970s and so um it became um uh, yeah a, a, a sort of waning devotion and everyone in those years that well maybe another 10 20 years but then we're done with the silent walk but yeah miraculously one could say uh it's still here and still to go and we still have a yearly what shall we say four or five thousand um 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 people who participate in it it's still a little bit diminishing so we still have to see but well it has overcome many many uh, contestations, many periods of decay or suppression and so on. So um, there is still this private organization, the Society of the Silent Walk, as it is called, and they still organize every year um, uh, the Silent Walk. And maybe ironically, um, one of the one of the major uh, threats is maybe uh, the popularity of Amsterdam as a tourist destination. Because, well, 
um, we know all these stories about the pressure of over tourism and so on. But nowadays, uh, even at night, at midnight, after 12 o'clock, when you go to the streets uh, in mid-March, which is not a very, very, well, touristic or warm season, it's often quite wet and cold and so on, but then the streets at night are filled and these small medieval streets, um, they, they, they are filled with people, tourists walking with their with their luggage, uh, they are drinking, standing in groups, um, um, smoking weed or whatever. And and it's often practically very difficult for the silent procession to pass by. And also because they are not alone anymore in the streets in their, well, meditative isolation, so to say, it, the whole experience of doing um, the, the silent walk, being confronted so directly with people who are drinking and shouting and yelling because they do not understand what these uh, mute, silent walking people doing there, a little bit old-fashionedly dressed and so on. So there is this, 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 um, this, this, well, culture, well, it's not, well, maybe you could say a sort of small culture war between tourists, tour, the, the, the excesses of tourism and the still devote people who are well who find each other at midnight in these uh, red light area districts of Amsterdam and so last year for the first time the organization was obliged to set in well um, um, people who take care for the order but it also uh, there was an, um, an, a, 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 a spontaneous initiative from the bar owners of those streets and they said, well, we have respect for this tradition. We see the difficulty about combining tourism and, and this kind of uh, devout rituality. And the bar owners had a sort of, um, well, um, uh, or, or how to say, or a sort of policing task. And they hired people to keep people at distance. Uh, had the, the people who are frequenting the bar to keep them inside or not too much on the street. And so maybe, well, this is a little counterweight against the over-tourism Amsterdam is confronted with nowadays. So what the future will bring, we'll, maybe we don't know. I don't have a glass bulb, so uh, I, I cannot say, but this is the present day situation. What a, uh, that would be ironic, right, though, if we had a this uh, procession that's lasted 650 years, survived the the excesses of the Reformation only to be killed by drunken bro tourists in Amsterdam in the 21st century. That, that doesn't bear thinking. No, All right. It's interesting because also um, UNESCO eh, wants to propagate uh, um, uh, uh, world cultural heritage, but also intangible cultural heritage. And by trying to protect intangible cultural heritage because I advised also the Society of the Silent March, please do not go for an accreditation for the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage National List because if you get on it, it gets worse. And well, that's, that's why you see what's happening in Venice and in this Venice of the North is happening as well. That, that, that well, where cherished for is actually also being, um, well, um, yeah, brown, brought down by the people who want want to to see all these wonders. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, the the problem, I mean, the tourism is just, it, it's destructive. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I mean, I, I understand why the world wants to see Amsterdam, right? It's a great yeah, city. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, why we want to see Venice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm also a nice place. Okay, so uh, how do you end this book? Chapter 7, Conflict or Consensus? How, how do we well, conclude? Well, it's 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 a book over such a long period with so many so many threads in it connecting economy, social life, politics, uh, whatever is connected to this miracle, and it's it's difficult to 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 well to oversee it. Also, we want to have a sort of final uh, wrapping up. And uh, also because there has been so much contest contestation and um, and uh, we wanted to 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 make clear that actually it's nowadays uh, well, m it's more about consensus than uh, than about contestation. And um, well, maybe hey, if we talk about tourism, that that's also a contestative element. But if we look at the, the rituality itself, we see that in the last decades, uh, maybe also a little bit ironically, that they have been trying to involve Protestants, but also Jews, but also uh, non-believers, uh, New Age people to connect to uh, the silent walk, because the silent walk actually is not so much a Catholic ritual, but it's a meditative ritual in silence to which everyone can connect uh, quite easily. And so there have been some um, ecumenism of ecumenistic um, 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 silent walks in the in the past year, and um, and 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 so well, it it it, it actually. Uh, brings out it, it it advocates now consensus and and tolerance and um, as religious people um, um, going walking together towards the future and maybe if we have time then there is another important element to uh, connect it to the silent walk because uh, what we have been talking about is centuries or century old uh, history and the necessity to reinvent it every time. There's also, there were also very important reinventions in, in another way since the Second World War, because um, this idea of walking in silence uh, without any objects, without any symbolic, is 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 a very um, um, strong ritual. And after the Second World War in the uh, religiously then still so divided Dutch society yeah, between Protestants and Catholics, they were looking for what could be a proper ritual to commemorate the victims of the Second World War. And uh, it was difficult to find something in which both parties could, could find themselves together. And then one of the uh, main men of the Society of the Silent Walk he was asked in this committee to 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 try to to make something uh, up and he he proposed to do also a silent walk um still a tocht uh for the commemoration of the victims of the uh, second world war and actually inspired on this centuries old ritual uh, a new national ritual for 
combined Protestants, all, all denominations could be uh, included in that. A new ritual was invented and which is now yearly, every day on the 4th of May, when we commemorate our victims of World War, in every municipality of Amsterdam, a still a talk, the silent walk again is hold to, um, uh, to, to commemorate the victims. And it not only ended with with that ritual, because later on, at the end of the 20th century, there was again a sort of silent walk as a new uh, reinvention was put on the ritual map. And that was because, um, as we have seen elsewhere in Europe, that the uh, commemoration of individual victims in society due to um, 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 traffic victims, hey, young people who died or after traumatic events or about after big disasters, there's also a need to commemorate the victims. And in the Netherlands specifically in the 1990s, also a, a, a silent walk was different from the Catholic one, so to say, but actually when you look at them, they, they are not so very different, but the intention is different. The background is different. Uh, uh, silent walks are now a part of the ritual repertoire of the Netherlands after traumatic death and uh, the commemoration of victims. And so, uh, well, during the year, at least, well, dozens of still a tochte of such silent walks for after traumatic death are held throughout the Netherlands. And we have exported this product because you find them also now in other countries. That's fascinating. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, the connection of Remembrance Day and the silent walk, of course, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, that makes per that's fantastic. Um, so interesting. All right. So I've taken up a whole bunch of your time here. We've been talking for over an hour. Uh, but is there anything else you wanna you wanna say? Is there anything that we need to know? Is there something we haven't covered? Well, you had a list of, of questions, but I think yeah. you were. Yeah. No, I think we've gotten through it pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've touched on everything I wanted to talk about. Um, new project you had yet in somewhere? Oh, yeah. No, I would love to hear that. What are you doing next? Oh. So, yeah, what are you working on now? What I'm working on now? Well, well, this book is already, uh, well, it's, it's now just published in English, but my research has been done for some years. But now, now I'm actually working at something, well, it has some connection, but it's on alternative healing practices. And it's a little bit taboo subject, and it's not because I'm 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 doing it myself, because by I I encountered here in Amsterdam even even among well well educated people among friends of myself during the last year that people are increasingly doing alternative healing practices, and we have a very active anti-quack movement. They are very strong and very activist. And and so people do not want to talk about it a little bit. It's a little bit taboo in the Netherlands. And 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 so and I thought, well, nobody is touching this subject, not from a medical point of view, because that's that's not my field, of course, but from a cultural point of view. So I want to know why and how and how they do it and what kind of practices there are. So I started a, 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 a research project on alternative healing. I have many interns here, I've just written a book in Dutch about uh, sort of for the wider audience how to 
look from a cultural perspective to uh, alternative healing practices. It resulted directly that the anti-crack movement got down on my neck and said, what the heck is professor from the university doing with uh, alternative healing? Because they, well, when they see the word only, they, 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 they react and they don't see that it is not from, a, that I'm not advocating it, I'm not rejecting it, I'm just looking from a cultural perspective to to that thing. Well, that's one thing. Another thing is that I'm starting up, a, a, well, it's not a project, but a, 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 there is a need for a new handbook for students on ethnology, my field, so to say, European ethnology, ethnology. And so uh, this is another uh, book what I'm starting to write now. Okay, just a couple small projects then. Just, <laughs> no problem. You know, that's so funny. And we'll, we'll edit this out of the conversation because I'd be embarrassed. I go to a, an acupuncturist and I get myofacial release. And you know, I have a PhD. Like, it's ridiculous. And I know it doesn't help, but I just feel better. I don't know. I I had a student this semester who wrote about like yeah. the divine feminine and how like there be, there's this co-opting of like feminine ideals and Wicca and... It's all about weight loss. It's all yeah. very, it's a bizarre kind of unholy marriage there. Like they think it really affects women in particular. That's so cool. Yeah, all right. It's, 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 the important thing is that it's for so many people it works and, and, and the anti-crack movement is so pushy because as, as soon as someone deals with it, they, they try to put him or her down and, and, and and even me, there were articles in the newspapers, well, um, uh, um, accusing me of all kind of things. It was it's so stupid. But on the other hand, there are so many aspects which which have have, have a good outcome. So you shouldn't be so so mono mono man looking at healing practices as they do. So. I mean, there is another gendered issue there that, right, like we accept anything that you can prove that white guys in lab coats can prove is truth and anything else, you know, that like a thousand years of people doing it unofficially, that's not provable. That's not scientific method. It's a, it's interesting. If that's a gender issue, I don't know. I think it's it's made more of a, a sort of West, not where non-West uh, position. Yeah. More. Yeah, and it's about authority and regulation and legalism, yeah. and I'm I'm definitely inclined to look at everything yeah. from a gendered perspective. But a yeah, good point. All right. Yeah. Um. So let's let me finish up here officially. We'll cut back here. So uh, thank you very much. The book is The Miracle of Amsterdam: Biography of a Contested Devotion, uh, out in English from the University of Notre Dame Press and from Notre Dame, Indiana. Uh, I believe it's available now or soon. Absolutely. It's a really enjoyable read, uh, as well as everything else. It's well-researched. It's a, an excellent book. It's a really fun to read. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. I 